0: Uh, if you would open your Bibles to Jonah, we are in a series in the Book of Jonah, um, and, and I would encourage you if, you if you haven't been here for all of them to go back especially to the first one and, and because we did an overview, kind of painted a, a picture of where we're going and listen to that, but each of them have a, each one is really self-contained and, and has its own uh, contribution to the series, so I'd encourage you to catch up where you can uh, online. Um, or in the podcast, and uh, so if, if you would, um, uh, do that, but start we're going to start today back in uh, well, we're really going to look at chapter two, but we'll, we'll begin reading the last verse of chapter one uh, in our um, English Bibles. The Hebrew Bible, actually, 117 is verse one of chapter two. So they, they alter the, the break where they, where they break that accordingly. So uh, we're going to read that. You might note that the clock on the back wall is missing. Uh, because it is actually non-functional anymore. It wasn't just a battery, and what that means is, until we get a new one, uh, I have as long as I need or yeah. want. Or, and uh, so no, <laughs> just <clears throat> so uh, no. I actually have a clock here. You don't need to fear um, that will keep me uh, relatively on track, or about as much on track as I ever am. How's that? So, uh, uh, if you would open to uh, Jonah. Chapter 2, and then we'll back up from there uh, to verse uh, 17 of the first chapter. Um, and before we go to God's Word, if you would join me in prayer. I'm trying to get my my auto-rotate to work so that I can see this properly, uh, but it has decided it's uh, it's got a mind of its own today. Father, in Jesus' name, as we uh, come to your Word, open our... Minds, open our hearts to understand your word, to hear your word, to be taught by it, and to be equipped through your word for what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um. In Jonah 1, verse 17, we begin reading, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said... I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord, or to Yahweh. And the Lord, or Yahweh, spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land." In the early hours of April 8, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was led to the gallows in Flossenburg, Germany, to be hung by the neck until dead. His last words were, This is the end, for me, the beginning of life. What Bonhoeffer knew by faith, Jonah did not, but it was nonetheless true for him. When Jonah hit the water, he expected death, not the beginning of life. But in that place of death, he found life. Instead of being swallowed by the fearsome great sea monster, Leviathan, which is what he expected, reference last week's message for that, he was swallowed by a great fish. And as we talked about last week, when we are reading this story, when we get to the Lord prepared a great fish and it swallowed Jonah, we're supposed to laugh. Because that is contrary to our expectations. There, in this place of expected death, he finds himself in a womb. A place of life. Now I say that because in the first two mentions of the belly of the fish, if you look at one seventeen and one, it mentions that he's in the belly of a fish. It's, it's a word that firstly means belly, or guts, innards, if you will but could figuratively be used to mean womb, much like the English word belly. But then in verse 2, Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And that's a perfectly good translation, but there is a play on words that we would miss going on there. For that word for distress is like the groaning of a woman in labor. Out of my groaning, my distress. And if you've had a baby, you know that it is distress. Then Jonah says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. And that's an interesting phrase. Because that one, the word is not the same word translated belly above, but it's the word that would normally mean womb. Out of the womb of Sheol, out of the womb of the place of the dead. You don't expect to see life and death together right there in one phrase. You heard my voice. The combination of this language, what's going on here, is painting a picture in which we might expect to see life rather than death. But here in this place of death, that's exactly what happens for Jonah. What does Jonah do when he finds himself in the belly of a fish? Well, of course, he prays. What else would you do? I suppose you might drown. That would be one option. And when he prays, it's not just, you know, some term for, you know, like God's name in vain or or even simply, help! No. He prays what appears to be a well-thought-out prayer with very biblical language. And as we look deeper into the heart of this prayer, we discover some very important things about Jonah's faith through this prayer. We will learn about the preparation of his faith. We'll learn about the sufficiency of his faith, as well as its weakness. And we will learn about the performance of his faith. Keep in mind that this prayer, like the whole book, is not only about Jonah, but it's about us. As we talked about in week one, we are Jonah. We have to remember that as we walk through this book. He's the only Israelite in the whole book. So we are supposed to identify with him, which is exactly what Jesus did. In a different way, certainly than us, in many respects. Finding himself in a crisis of massive proportion, he turns to God. In his psalm, and that's what this chapter is, is it's a psalm. In this psalm, uh, Jonah teaches us a means of spiritual formation that will prepare our faith so that it is sufficient even when it is weak, so that when... When we need it most, it will perform effectively. Or I was talking with somebody earlier this morning, talking about it seems like watching the news, seeing what's going on in the world, just being aware of current events, that we're headed for a time of great difficulty. Well, to put it plainly, Jonah has something to teach us that will prepare us for such a time as that. Don't misunderstand, Jonah's faith itself was not particularly strong or brilliant. It was the object of his faith that mattered, but it was also the preparation of his faith. His faith was prepared for such a time as this. So we're going to explore this psalm of Jonah's under three headings today. The preparation of faith, the sufficiency of faith, and the performance of faith. Let's start under that first heading, the preparation of faith. Likely, due to our unfamiliarity with the Psalms, it is easy to miss what is, I think, an important point in this chapter or this psalm. And that is the utter ordinariness of Jonah's prayer. The utter ordinariness of Jonah's prayer. Now you might say, what do you mean? Well, given the circumstances described... I mean, he has been thrown off a boat into a sea. He's been swallowed by a great fish. One might expect an extraordinary prayer. But we don't get that. I mean, it is. We, the, 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 the captain of the ship had asked Jonah to pray. And do we see Jonah praying? No, he doesn't pray. Even when requested by a pagan to pray to Yahweh, he doesn't pray. But finally, when he lands in the belly of a fish, he does pray. And yet his prayer is anything but spectacular. It's about as ordinary a prayer as any Israelite could possibly give. Now, we miss that because we don't. it's not ordinary for us, and there's reason it's not ordinary for us, but it should be ordinary for us. So that's what I want to talk about under this first heading. You see, Jews were taught to pray by singing and reciting the Psalms. While the lines of Jonah's psalm may, may not be ordinary to us, There is not a single line in this psalm of his that is not represented in the book of Psalms. Everything in it is found in the book of Psalms pretty closely. Not exactly, but a close approximation. Now, none of the writers of the psalms, as far as we know, had ever been in the belly of a fish. David, Asaph, any of the others, they'd never been in the belly of a fish, but they seemed to know how to pray the way Jonah needed to pray when Jonah was in the belly of a fish. Listen to these verses from the Psalms. And and though we don't find Jonah's prayer in the Psalms, specifically as it stands, we find all the ideas there. So what you're going to have is, we're going to have slides where on the left side you're going to have Jonah's prayer. Now I'm not going to read that again. But on the right, you're going to see what I'm reading, which is from the Psalms. And if you just look at that, you'll see the correspondence between them. So first I'm going to bring up Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help from his temple he heard my voice and my cry to, uh, to him reached his ears or in psalm 120 verse 1 in my distress i called to the lord and he answered me or psalm 86 verse 13 for great is your steadfast love toward me you have delivered my soul from the depths of sheol or psalm 88 verse 6 and 7 you have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions of dark, dark and deep in region, the regions dark and deep your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves or 42, seven, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Or how about Psalm 31.22, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Or Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5, the cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. Or 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Or how about Psalm 30, verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Or Psalm 107, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from all their distress. Or Psalm 138, verse 2, I bowed down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Or Psalm 96, verse 5, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And finally, we see, or almost finally, uh, Psalm 50, verse 14 and 15, and then verse 23. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me to the one who orders his way rightly. I will show the salvation of God. And then finally, Psalm 116, verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. That's a lot of lines from the Psalms. But all represented in his prayer in some way or another. That Jonah's prayer is ordinary does not mean that it lacked quality. Arguably, its ordinariness increased its quality. It had quality because it was ordinary. More importantly, it tells us how Jonah was prepared for such a time as this. And what does it tell us about how he was prepared for this time, for this moment? Well, Jonah was not in the belly of that fish with scrolls on one side and and papyrus over here and and a pen in the other writing down his prayer. I mean, right? It may sound like that because, wow, what a prayer. And so we kind of get this idea, like, how did he create this prayer? He didn't create it there. It was formed in him as he memorized the Psalms. One of the beauties of, what, uh, of cultures that we think of as illiterate, uh, studies have shown that Ill, what we call illiterate cultures had a massive capacity for memorization that is lost the minute you teach them how to read. At most every Jew, any, any Jew that was practicing their faith whatsoever in that time would have memorized the entire book of Psalms, the Psalter. The whole thing. And so Jonah had it probably, Well, When you're memorizing, what are you doing? You're etching it in your soul. You're right into your mind. You're doing what Psalm 1 tells us to do, to meditate on it day and night. And in meditating on it day and night, what happens is you begin to incorporate it into the way you think and the way you are. Jonah wasn't going line by line. Now Psalm 30, and then there's Psalm 88, and then there's... He was just speaking... Out of the depth of his soul, but a soul that had been formed by the recitation of the psalms. It's what came out. You know, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, that's what came out of him in that moment. Listen, originality is not the benchmark of authenticity. Authenticity. We live in a culture that's all about authenticity, and yet everybody acts the same, so you kind of wonder. But originality is not the bookmark of authenticity. If you have to use your own words in prayer in order for it to be authentic, then that would mean that Jesus was not authentic when he prayed. He frequently used the Psalms. And besides, if using your own prayer is a measure of authenticity, then likely using your own language would be necessary too. Probably even your own alphabet, because all of that was handed down to you by someone else. And so if originality is the measure of authenticity, you're going to have to start with an entirely new language. Of course, that's absurd. After the Last Supper, we we find um, that Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn. Now, according to Jewish tradition, that hymn that would have come after their Passover meal were the Hallel Psalms of Psalm 113 through 118. You see, the Psalms are the prayer book and the song book of God's people, and they prepare us for times of distress, times of pain, times with life altering circumstances. On the cross, Jesus recited Psalm 22, and many scholars assume that he began with Psalm 1 and just got to Psalm 22 at the point they recorded it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Praying a lament. The Psalms were the primary worship of the church for almost 1,800 years, but suddenly the church of the modern era decided it's like Ford and it thinks it has a better idea. But arguably, this has left us ill-prepared for times of crisis. None of the lines of Jonah's prayer were original, but they were effective. They were not original, but they were effective. Jonah models for us how to prepare for the inevitable days when we feel away from God, when we feel out of His sight, when we are in the pit, the place of death, the abyss, or whatever else expresses your deep pain. And some of the life altering circumstances. You see, this psalm of Jonah's is about spiritual formation by the use of the psalms that he had grown up with. And that's the same spiritual formation that needs to take place in us if we're going to be ready for the certain times of difficulty that our lives will face. Jonah models. For us, how to prepare for the inevitable days, that these things are the reality for our life. I, I would encourage you, each of us, to make praying through the Psalms a part of your prayer time. Praying through the Psalms a part of your prayer time. Working systematically through the entire Psalter, at least yearly or twice a year, preferably even monthly. Spending that time reading them aloud. So they have an impact on you in a different sort of way. And you might say, yeah, but some of those psalms don't really relate to how I feel on that given day. That's fine. Think of somebody else who feels that way. Think of somebody in the congregation whose experience right now is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my cry? You see, the laments may not apply every day, but if you pray them for others and you spend time in them, when you need them, they'll be there for you. And what the laments teach us so clearly is that it's okay to go to God with our concerns about how He is managing the world. To bring them to Him. To talk to Him about them. We'll see that here in in Jonah in, in, in in a bit, but... It's there as well. We're going to, not only do I encourage you to do it privately, but we're going to increase our use of the Psalms and the language of the Psalms in our prayers as a congregation, so that we have more of that going on. You probably heard it this morning. In the call to worship, are from a Psalm. In the pastoral prayer, beginning with the Psalm, that, that these are ways that we are formed for, to be ready for what would lay ahead, as well as for praying now. Now, one might ask, how did Jonah's psalm-like prayer change his situation? I mean, he is in the belly of a fish, and as far as we know, up until the very last line, he's still in the belly of a fish. So how did it change his situation? So let's, that'll get to our second heading, the sufficiency of Jonah's faith. Now, when I say sufficient, I don't mean it was perfect, nor do I mean it didn't have its own weaknesses, and we'll look at those. But it was sufficient, for instance, to move him from Sheol to the temple. Remember in chapter 1, we saw this over the last few weeks, that Jonah began a downward trajectory that culminates in the depth of the sea. And the turn is in the middle of chapter 2. It's in verse 4. It's in the middle of that verse. Note that it says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. And then there's a semicolon in our English Bible there. That's the lowest point. Of his descent. I am driven away from your sight. But then notice what comes next. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He suddenly turned upward. No matter how downward his trajectory. Yet I shall again. He suddenly. And, and I think. Logically so. When Jonah's thrown into the sea. Expecting to be swallowed by Leviathan and die. When he is instead swallowed by a great fish. As silly as that seemed, he realized, God is rescuing me. I may not deserve it, but I will live. I will live, and yet, therefore, I shall see your face. See, the very thing he was running from, chapter 1 began with him running from the temple, running from the presence of God, in the opposite direction of God's call. Now he finds himself looking, I will go there again. It's a turn. It's a beginning of repentance for Jonah. Notice the movement in his prayer. First, we note where he comes from, from the belly of a fish, out of my distress, out of the belly or womb of Sheol, from the deep, the heart of the seas, from being away from God's sight, from the pit, O Lord my God. And now let's observe where he is going. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. In verse 4, in verse 6, you brought my life, up my life from the pit. And then in verse 7, my prayer came to you into your holy temple. You see, in this solemn act of prayer, Jonah has moved. He's still in the belly of a fish, physically. He's still in the depths of the sea, physically. He's still in the realm of the dead, Sheol. But now he's moving to the temple of the living God in his soul, to the place of life, not death. Nothing has changed circumstantially for him, but his heart was beginning to connect with his God, and it was giving him life. How did it happen? What made that change? He said what he knew about God. Yet I shall look again on your holy temple. No matter how far he had run from God in his temple, Jonah was ready to return. He said what he knew about God. Secondly, he remembered the Lord. When my life, verse 7, when my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. This doesn't mean that God had slipped his mind and suddenly, oh yes, there's God. That's not what he means by remembered. It means he was calling to mind the truth about God. And in the belly of a fish, he doesn't have a laptop that he can go to to look up verses. He doesn't have a Bible that he can go to. He doesn't have any papyrus. All he has, what was written in his heart, by the memorization of the Psalms. The recitation, the prayerful consideration of the Psalms. Not only was Jonah's faith sufficient to move him back into relationship with God, it was sufficient for one whose repentance is not perfect sufficient in the place of imperfect repentance, which is good news because of the fact that the last time I checked, we all have imperfect repentance, right? In fact, the reason Jesus had to be baptized by John in order to fulfill all righteousness is because there wasn't a single individual going to be baptized by John that perfectly turned toward God in their repentance. They might have turned away from something and And, you know, if God is here, they're kind of going here or here or here or here. But only Christ turned perfectly to the Father in full obedience. So only His baptism is perfect, which is why we are baptized into Him. And that's why our baptism, whether I don't know if I believed enough at the time, I don't know if I understood enough, I don't know, it doesn't matter. Your baptism, no matter how well thought out you thought it was, was not perfect, but His is. Amen? Never mind Jonah's disobedience and running away from God's call. Jonah is quite sure that this is all God's fault. Look at verse 3. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Well, Jonah's certainly correct about God's role. But the blame does not land on God's feet. Jonah was running from the presence of God, and that can only lead to death. As the Psalms demonstrate and Job illustrates, Jonah is allowed to speak directly to God about how he views God. And like Job, it is in the directness of his speech, his willingness to bring to God all that he is thinking, that he actually finds God. Sure, he was wrong about many things, just as Job was. Job said many things that were not correct, but Job was commended because he brought them to God and talked to God about it, while his friends kept saying, you can't talk to God like that. And they were rebuked. Closer to the point, though, if Jonah's claim is true in chapter 2 and verse 4, That he ran away from God because, quote, what it says there, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. If that is true, and I think that it is, we can count on that, that that's what he really thought at the beginning, then Jonah is no happier now in the belly of the fish about what God is doing than he was in chapter 4 or he was in chapter 1. Jonah hasn't suddenly agreed with how God wants to do things. Jonah, quite frankly, still very much disagrees with what God is doing. But he has at least said uncle and begun to acknowledge who God is. I think we see this very clearly in verses 8 and And, 9. And there it says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. Now, who might this be referring to? Who is it that pays regard to vain idols. It's certainly not the sailors that are above him in the boat offering sacrifices to Yahweh. They've turned to Yahweh. So it is not them. He can be referring to no one but the Ninevites, who, by the way, never really worship Yahweh. We'll get to that in chapter 3. They get spared, but they never turn truly to Yahweh. The NIV captures the sense of verse 8 well. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. They turn away from chesed, covenant love. We might call it grace today. In Jonah's opinion, the Ninevites had turned away from God's love because they were clinging to worthless idols. And Jonah wanted them to get justice. I mean, that's really the bottom line of what we see in this book. He wanted them to get, of course, Jonah's justice. He had a real problem with God's justice because God's justice meant forgiving them. But Jonah's justice meant giving them what they deserved. And remember, everyone reading this book in the first audience agrees with Jonah and not God on the point. See, we tend to read it from our 21st century evangelical minds, and we think to ourselves, how could Jonah... So much hate the Ninevites that he would want God not to forgive them. How bad Jonah. But that's not how they thought. It's not how they thought because they understood what was going on. You see, the people who first received this understood that 20 to 30, maybe 35 years later, those same Ninevites who were forgiven would utterly destroy Israel. Annihilate them to where we no longer know of those 10 tribes. So every one of them would have said, yeah, look, God, Jonah was right. You should not have spared them. Because they were the death of them. Imagine we go home today and hear on the news, not of a mass shooting at a school, but rather of an invasion of our country by forces innumerable beyond our ability to fight. Now, that's hard to fully imagine, given where we're at. But imagine that happened. And then you read a story, and, and, and let's say they destroy us. Not every person, but as a civilization, we are destroyed and the rest of us are enslaved. Our names will be no more. And then you read a story about how God said, yes, we need to let those people survive. And you're thinking, no, 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 no. They're the ones that are going to kill us a few years later. Don't, Don't let them survive. That's what's going on in the minds of the people reading this book for the first time. So Jonah is quite clearly saying they have turned to vain idols They have forsaken your grace. Don't give them grace is the point. And then note that he makes quite clear that he isn't including himself. But I, (laughs) those who have turned to vain idols, they turn away from God's love for them. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. You see, Jonah's making it clear he has not turned to worthless idols. But at last he acknowledges what he would prefer not to be the case. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, rescue of the Ninevites, or of Jonah in the sea, (laughs) belongs to the Lord. Jonah understands that he deserved death, and yet God in his providence gave him mercy and life instead. And so Jonah's willing to concede. And yes, Lord, I suppose (laughs) salvation belongs to you. And if you really want to spare the Ninevites, that's up to you. And and I'll go do what you said, as we'll see when we get to chapter 3. But I'm not going to put my heart into it. And we'll see that too. At that point, when he concedes God's right to do as he pleases, despite Jonah's disagreement with it, the fish is commanded to vomit him up. He has a job to do. Jonah's repentance may have been incomplete and his faith may be weak in that he doesn't fully trust God's ways, but his faith is sufficient that he might be raised out of the tomb of that fish into a new life which follows. And you might say, man, my faith is not strong, but let me encourage you that in Christ your faith is sufficient to raise you out of the tomb of death. And into the life that God has for you. A tomb of destruction. A tomb far away from God's presence. A tomb where you feel like you're out of His sight. It is sufficient when you lean on Him. Even though you might have questions about how He's running the world. To raise you to new life. When your repentance is incomplete and your faith is weak. Speak the truth to yourself about God and His ways. The truth about how you're feeling to God. Use those laments to cry out to God, How long, O Lord, how long? And in speaking that truth, you'll be performing the faith. So let's look at how Jonah's faith was, how it performed, and look at our third heading, The Performance of Jonah's Faith. I don't know if you've noticed, but Jonah's prayer speaks as if God's deliverance has already come while he's still in the belly of the fish. Notice, for instance, in verses 1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to you, Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly, or womb of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. What evidence does he have of that exactly? He's still in the belly of the fish. I mean, no doubt, having expected a big sea monster and getting a big fish instead he was awakened to who Yahweh God is that this that this deep chaos this this place of death was not far from God that God even rescued in the middle of that he knows that despite being about as far away as possible from the temple from the presence of God that God was with him in hearing and answering his prayers And I would say no doubt that this truth is comforting for the first audience of people who are about as far from Jerusalem in the temple as imaginable, swallowed in the belly of the beast, Assyria and later Babylon, that God was near them also and would hear them and answer them from His holy temple, which was far away. It should also comfort us when we feel about as far from God as we can be. God hears us in the darkest place, in the deepest despair, and in the worst of circumstances. Amen? Now, some might worry that speaking like Jonah of the reality of God's rescue before one has experienced it fully. Remember, he's in a fish, not on dry land. The fish is merely a promise of dry land to come, in a manner of speaking, a promise that God can rescue him. Some might argue or worry that speaking that way would be some kind of pretense. And I would suggest to you that we are... Uh, That that when we are living naturally and just going by what we see, that that is the pretense, the lie. And that when we begin speaking and living the truth about God, we are finally walking in the truth. When Moses asked God, the God who was speaking to him from a burning bush, his name, his answer was, I am that I am. That's who you can tell him sent me. But that could be translated, I will be what I will be. And throughout the scriptures, God makes himself known by his acts. I will do what I will do. Be another way to say it. I will act as I act, and that's how you'll know me. And ultimately he acted in Jesus Christ to make himself known the most full, most fully. But you know we too make ourselves known by our acts of speech and the deeds that follow. Sometimes we actually make ourselves known to ourselves when we start speaking the truth that we didn't believe before. Gordon Winham, in his book, The Psalter Reclaimed, gives insights into how praying the Psalms is spiritually formative. Quote, he says, I will suggest that in some ways singing a psalm or a hymn is like taking an oath. We are committing ourselves in a binding way to a particular set of beliefs and embracing a lifestyle. You see, as we are speaking the Psalms, we are, in a sense, making an oath, a commitment. And we are talking ourselves into the truths that they teach. We're making a profession. It's one thing to hear that Jesus is king. You can hear that when you come in. Christ reigns on high. You can hear that. It's quite another thing to profess it with our mouth, or at least Paul thinks so, when he says that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart. In the Psalms, praying in a world in which wicked people are king, we declare Yahweh is king. But we also cry out to him with our questions about how he is running things. And that itself is a declaration of faith. I mean, it takes faith to have a complaint about how God is running the world. If you think about it, that requires faith. Winham continues, quote, But reciting the psalms is quite different. The one who prays the psalms is taking their words on his lips and saying them to God in a personal and solemn way. You see, the psalms are given to us to make them our own. They were once the words of David or Asaph. But we aren't given those words to analyze what they meant to David. We are given them to use in our own speaking to God. We have very little context for any of the psalms, which is actually helpful because they aren't intended to be about that context. They're intended to be about your context. You can't pray the psalms without being personal. Try try these words on your lips. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. That's, That's a daring prayer. But it's a commitment then that you're going to live a certain way, isn't it? Try this one. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. I was early in our marriage, 1984, when I was reciting the 34th Psalm in my prayer time in the morning. And I got to that part about fearing and, and, and not needing to fear and the Lord delivering. And, and in that very moment of saying that, the Lord gave me wisdom to take all of our possessions and put them up high in the closets of our house. That the river that I was looking out the window at was going to overflow and flood. And sure enough, I later go to work. By the time I get back, they've closed off the place, and you can't get back in to get your possessions. We lost nothing. But it was just in praying a psalm that somehow the Lord spoke to me. It became real for me in that moment. So I can't read the 34th Psalm and not think about that. As we say these things, we're being formed into the people that God has called us to be. Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade away like the grass and wither like the green herb. You see, praying that psalm actually begins to root envy out of our hearts to change us. Jonah had a lifetime of shaping through meditation in the law of God applied in the psalms, and therefore he was ready at his lowest point. It's not uncommon to hear some complain, you know, I I prayed X, Y, Z about certain sin that I want deliverance from, but God didn't answer me. I guess my question would be, did you pray in such a way that you were shaped by the truth of God in your very praying? The Psalms will help you pray that way. They aren't merely saying, God, give me the strength to overcome. They are declaring what God is doing in your heart and life and changing you. This is why Winham goes on to say, when you pray a psalm, you are describing the actions you will take and what you will avoid. It is more like taking an oath or making a vow. You see, when God speaks to us in His Word, He is making a commitment to us. He is promising something to us. When we speak to God, the words of the psalms, we are making a commitment to Him. We are promising something to Him. We we shape our faith through both private and and congregational speaking and singing of the psalms. Then when needed, when necessary, our prayers now shaped by those psalms are the very performance of our faith, as Jonah's was in the womb of that fish. Jonah found himself in the womb of death, Sheol, inside a big fish. But that was indeed evidence of grace to him so that he could then cry out to God in faith. Faith that had been prepared in the mundane walk of memorizing the Psalms, meditating on them. Faith that, although it was weak in, its, in, in ways, it was sufficient and ready to perform in Jonah's time of need. Faith in the God who gives life to the dead. You see, Jonah receives that life and finds himself on dry land. But his faith was... I mean, If you're praying in the belly of a fish in the bottom of the sea, you've got faith in the God who raises the dead. <coughs> What about you? What about me? Some of us are in a place like Jonah's and our faith is on the line and it better perform. It may be difficult circumstances beyond our control. It may be because of sins against you. It may be because of your own foolish and sinful choices like Jonah's. No matter what the cause or how weak you think your faith is, take God's word upon your lips and begin putting faith into action speaking these truths to God. Some are in a place where all is well, and Jonah's pit seems totally different than our experience. Now is the time to prepare, to prepare your faith for another day. You will do this by praying and memorizing the Psalms, the Lord's Prayer, Paul's Prayers. We could go on. Sometimes we discover in prayer that what seems like the end is the beginning of life. We talked last week, and just a final thought as we close. We talked last week about how this chapter, Jonah's time in the water, in the fish, is a picture of baptism. We went through that more in depth last week. He was buried in the sea in death, but because he was in the fish, he was able to travel safely through death to life. Well, that fish points us to Christ, in whom we, in the waters of baptism, travel safely through death to life a sign of our new identity to be found in Him. So if these words I'm speaking today seem foolish, that one could in a difficult circumstance turn to God and find life, let me encourage you to consider the gospel, where Christ came as the creator of all things, and the creator of all things died, in order that in Him all who are created could die, in order that we might be raised to new life. Oh, the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some here, Lord, are in a place where they need a faith like Jonah's. Weak, yes. Not perfect, yes. But able to perform. Meet them, we pray, with the words of the Psalms, with the truth of Scripture, to put it on their lips, that they might be transformed. That they might find hope and see signs of your grace. Help them to find where you have sent a fish for them in Christ. And Lord, help all of us to take seriously the formation of our own souls, our own lives, as we meditate in your word and the Psalms and the prayers of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.